All right, so by way of review, last week, as Brad mentioned, we talked about anger and how anger uh, is a, as a form of sin works its way into our lives. And we are here, I, I have this as the, the fifth part of our teaching series. I know a number of people are traveling this week. A number of you will be traveling and doing other things. It is summertime in Colorado, and we, we love that. Uh, just give the pitch again. Uh, we do have all of our teachings. Make it up onto our website, denverfirehouse.com, or you can go to the podcast app thing on your phone and type in the Firehouse Church Messages. And you'll find all our messages there. So as you're traveling and uh, away, and uh, as you miss these parts, we encourage you definitely feel free to uh, download those and listen to them. But today we're going to move on in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and the verses 27 to 32. Um, and I got these on the screen for you. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles or on your phone as you can. But Jesus continues. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And this is the word of the Lord. So, I think we're going to have to ask this question. We go, okay, last week we talked about anger, and we'll be talking about other things in weeks to come, but today, this week, our topic is adultery. And so, really, we have to ask, what did Christ tell us about adultery? And I think to really get to that, we have to say, well, what did Christ tell us about righteousness? And so this is a little bit of review from what we talked about in weeks past. If we go back a few verses in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 20, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And remember we said that to fulfill means to obey, right? He's come not to abolish the law in the Old Testament, but to obey it. <clears throat> he goes on and he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religious people you could ever imagine, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we learned in weeks past here that he's telling us that the law is impossible for us to obey. We cannot perfectly obey God's law. We can't do it. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have broken the law. All of us have broken the law in a lot of ways. The good news is that Jesus was the only one who actually could fulfill the law. He's the only one who did fulfill the law. He's the only one who obeyed perfectly. So when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most religious people, well, there's only one person whose righteousness ever exceeded the most religious people possible. That person was Jesus. And so we can also remember, we talked about this last week, that the self-righteous draw their own circles around sin. 
And so we had some diagrams, right? And we looked at these and I updated them for this week's topic. But here you've got some things. You've got adultery, you've got lust, and you've got divorced. And so the legalist, the self-righteous, goes and draws a circle around adultery and says, that is sin, and what's outside of the circle is not sin. But as we saw, we talked about last week, that the truth, what Jesus is telling us right here in this passage is, you have all of these things, and actually all of them are sin. And so, I put that up there, and you go, wait a second, so are you and I adulterers? Is that what you're saying, Greg? Are you saying, are you calling me an adulterer? Are you calling me an adulterer? Because when I think back to what Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, I've done that. Right? Yes. You and I are adulterers. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I would submit to you that this applies to both men and women. That is an interchangeable standard. Jesus is demonstrating to us right here what it says in Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, not one. I'm not righteous when it comes to this. You're not righteous when it comes to this. Think about your life. Think back to your week. Did you commit adultery according to Jesus' definition of adultery? Me too. And this is hard news, and this is bad news, and sometimes when we're faced with bad news, we say things like, why does Jesus have to make me feel bad? Because they feel like that. Why do you make me feel so bad, Jesus? <laughs> Well, I think there's some reasons why we have to feel bad. If we don't see the bad news, if we don't grasp how evil and rotten and wretched we really are, if we allow ourselves to draw circles and exclude sin from the circle of sin, I think a couple things happen. First, I think we're in danger of spending eternity in hell because we think we can earn our way into heaven by our own good works. Right? Many of us here have received the free gift of salvation and we've understood the good news. And we're not going to spend eternity in hell, but many of us may be in a place where we think we're going to heaven because we do some good works, we do some good, and we're good people. <clears throat> so if we asked you that question, if you die tonight, how sure are you going to go to heaven? You say, I'm pretty sure. And we'd say, why, why do you think that? You say, because I'm a pretty good person. But when we say I'm a pretty good person, we don't understand the bad news, do we? We don't understand that I am so wretched and so sinful and so despicable that there's no way I'm going to make it there on my own. My righteousness doesn't exceed the most righteous, the most religious people anywhere. And we are in danger of spending eternity in hell because we think we can earn our way to heaven by just being a good person. So Jesus kind of has to make me feel bad to show that to me so that I know that points this out to us. And I think the second reason, and this tends toward the good news, is that we will miss just how deep and amazing and all-encompassing Christ's love is for us. We can miss how deep it is and how amazing it is. The more I understand how sinful and wretched and terrible I am, 
the more I recognize, wow, Christ's love for me is incredible. Christ's love for me is incredible. So what is that good news? Let's encapsulate that good news. The first part of it is this. The gospel frees me from the penalty due for adultery. What are the wages of sin? Death. The wages of sin are death. And so there's a penalty due for the sin of adultery. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Every single one of us is going to die once. And we're going to stand before God. And we're going to be judged. And there's a penalty due for our sin. There is a penalty due for our adultery. And that penalty is eternal death. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ was righteous on my behalf. And so we're going to stand up there and we're going to have our list of sins. And it's going to include a lot of adultery for each one of us, isn't it? And God's going to, you know, can you imagine God saying, well, you're guilty of this. And we'll go, yeah. And Jesus will stand up and he'll take that list and he'll crumple it up and throw it away and say, I paid for that. I was righteous on his or her behalf. And that's the first part of the good news. And the second part of the good news is this, that the gospel now frees me to make righteous choices. I now can do righteous things. I can do them in freedom because Christ has paid that penalty for me. And that's what we're going to focus on the rest of this morning as we talk about these issues from this passage. So Jesus really, in our our passage this morning, he talks about lust and he talks about divorce. So let's start with the first one. As for review, you've heard it, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He goes on, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so what is Jesus saying about lust? He's saying that, you know what? Because this is the case, it's really easy to commit adultery. It's really, really easy. And I think in some ways, as I think about this and pray about this and look at the landscape and the world that we're all swimming in, we live in one of the most difficult times in the history of the world when it comes to the sin of lust, don't we? We are surrounded, we are surrounded by a culture that says, hey, it's okay, and let's make it as easy as possible for you to lust. Right? None of us are hermits. None of us are living in isolated places where we're not in touch with culture and reality. And even if you were to say, I'm going to go and hide in my basement, you'd probably have your computer or your smartphone, and you'd be connected. I think of those things, computers and phones and even our fashion, media, entertainment and Netflix and all of these things are making it really easy for all of us to engage in lust. Just Jesus says is adultery. 
So I think God has wired us in a certain way where He's wired men visually and women emotionally, generally speaking, in those areas. He's wired us those ways and the devil has taken that and used that as a weapon against us. And I hope you see that as you walk through the world every day. So because of this, we need to be serious about how easy it is to sin this way today. And then I think something else Jesus is saying about lust is that it's actually our sinful nature to try to exclude lust from the category of sin, isn't it? Ah, that's not bad. Here's some things people will say. That doesn't actually hurt anyone. Nobody knows about it. That's not actually the act of adultery, is it? But what are these things? They're drawing circles, aren't they? And excluding things out of the circle of sin. And furthermore, I think these things are false. So lust ultimately hurts. And if you go down that road and you go and you use pornography and use other things, you're engaging in sex trafficking. And you're building an industry that's built upon lust and sin. And I'd say nobody knows. God knows. And you know. And you're not nobody. And you can say it's not actually the act of adultery. Well, Jesus said actually it is. Actually it is. And so these things aren't even true. And so Jesus calls us here to turn from lust because it produces bad fruit in our lives. It doesn't hurt anyone, Jesus says, I beg to differ. Lust violates our covenant that we've made before God and our spouse. If you're married, if you're not married, before your future spouse. Lust also starts us down a path that is going to lead to worse and worse. More increasing problems as we go. See, you just look. And after you look, you look again. At some point, you can't just look again. You have to make contact. And after you have contact, then you have action. And from action comes addiction. And it's bad fruit in your life. You can lose your family. You can lose your home. You can lose your job. You can lose money. You can lose fellowship. It produces bad fruit. Now let's remind ourselves again of this fact. Christ died for you. He died for me. Each one of us who was challenged by this sin, Christ died for us and has forgiven it. Amen. So we can now ask this. How do we achieve victory when it comes to this sin? How do we achieve victory? Well, Jesus tells us, doesn't he? What does he say? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, poke it out, right? So after church, we're going to meet in the cafe, and we're going to cut off some hands and poke out some eyes. I'm kidding. <laughs> Obviously. Right? If that was what Jesus really intended for us to do, there would be a lot of us walking around without hands and eyes. And guess what? We'd probably still be sinning. Right? That wouldn't stop us. So I don't think Jesus is saying, yeah, just cut off your hand or poke out your eye. Not literally. I think he means this. I think he means we need to get serious about our sin. 
think it's a serious deal to cut off your hand, wouldn't it? It would be really serious. Jesus is saying, get serious about your sin. What else are you serious about? I think some of us are not very serious about our sin, but we're serious about other things, right? There's a lot of people who are really serious about healthy eating. <laughs> right? Maybe not so serious about sin. we got to get really serious about sin. And so we got to remember this, too, that if we are saved only through Christ, it's only by the blood of Christ that we'll stand there at the judgment seat and be forgiven and walk into eternity with God. It's only by His blood. Well, then guess what? The only way we're going to get to victory in this area of sin is through Christ. Amen? So what should we do? I think what Jesus is saying is that we need to bring this particular sin, and, and other sins, but this sin particularly, because that's what he's talking about, we need to bring it out of privacy. Right? If you were to really cut your hand off in response to sin, I don't think you could fool anybody. Right? What would you do? Put on like a fake wooden hand and walk around and be like, look, I have two hands. <laughs> we wouldn't do that. It would be very public. <clears throat> and I think what Jesus is saying is that we need not to bring you up here on stage and have you profess to everyone, but you need to bring it out. Out of the privacy of your own heart. We do that by confession. So verse in James chapter 5. He says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I think sometimes we can think, I can just sort of confess this private sin to God and that's where it's, it's all going to get better. But what does he tell us? He says the way to find healing, to move forward from these sins that are private sins in your life, is to confess them in the horizontal relationship. And I think that's what we need to do, and I think there's, there's evidence, and many of us have experienced that as you go along, that healing from the damage of sin comes from bringing it out and, and sharing it. As we try to create that culture, I think as believers, we need to remember this verse as well. Galatians 6.2, Paul says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And what fulfill means? Obey. Carry each other's burdens to obey what Christ has told us to do. See, Christians, I think we have a problem... And part of our problem, and this is something that has been a trend for several decades for Christians, at least in this country, is that we've sort of acted like we are the 99 and the 1 is just out there. And if the 1 is going to come in here, then we're going to bring the 1 in and the 1 needs to sort of deal with their sin problem and kind of get themselves sort of figured out so they can kind of have communion with people in the church. Believers, I think that's wrong. That's not what God has called us to do. I think, I think, we need to be willing as believers to be exposed to very difficult sins that others are carrying. We need to be willing to hear things that maybe we don't, wouldn't just want to hear. You wouldn't get up in the morning and say, I want to hear the confession of sin, but that is what God has called us to do. We're called to listen and to help each other. 
And that might mean we've got to hear things and engage with things that we might not want to. But we're called to carry each other's burdens. That's how we obey the instructions of Christ. So at the Firehouse Church, I know we announced earlier, we have a, a number of, of groups that meet. We have those gospel groups, and gospel groups really exist in, for one primary reason, and that's so that we can carry each other's burdens. So we have a men's group, and we have a women's group, and a worship group, and a singles group, and part of the goal is that we get together in those, and it leads us into relationship, where we can have accountability, and in accountability, we can begin to confess, and we can carry one another's burdens, we can bring our sins out to one another, and pray for one another, we can take the private things, and make them public. We can get serious about our sin. In addition to that, I would mention Brad and I and Rich as well. Part of our role and our responsibility and what you all have raised us up to do in this church is to offer counseling at a pastoral level. I just want to say, I think sometimes we forget, and I have had a number of people, a number of you, in the goodness of your heart, you've said, oh, I know you're really busy, Greg, but maybe we could get together. Don't ever say, I know you're really busy. The number one priority in this job is to be there for you, to chat with you, and talk with you, and help you, and walk with you through this. And Brad, the same, and Rich, the same. That's what we're here for. Not that we have the answers or some sort of magic solution for what's going on. But that's what God's called us to do and be here for you. So remember that. So let's move on from, from lust here and into divorce. What did Jesus say about divorce in this passage? He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what is Jesus saying about divorce? Well... Similar way, he's saying it's our sinful nature to take divorce and exclude it from the realm of sin. Say, ah, I'm going to draw a circle and I'm going to put divorce inside of this. Right? In the same way that there were certain statements about lust, there's statements that can be made about divorce. Oh, well, he or she did this to me. Or, it's not against the law, it's legal. Or, everybody's doing it. And again, what are these? These are ways of drawing circles. It's a way of drawing circles. Now, of course, we have to sort of qualify this, and we have to ask that question. I know we do. As soon as I said it, every single one of you probably thought, hmm, are there times when divorce is justified? Are there times when divorce is justified? Well, I think the short answer is that surely there are times when divorce is justified. But that doesn't mean that divorce is good, ever. We need to consider what else the Bible says about divorce. And I've got some other passages here. You'd be welcome to write these down and, and take a look at them in depth. I'll just touch on them briefly. Matthew 19, Jesus is asked specifically by the Pharisees about divorce. And he gives a very direct answer. Mark 10 and Luke 16 would be com companion or sister passages to, the, to Matthew 5. And interestingly, in both of those, Jesus gives no exception for divorce. Deuteronomy 24 is the law that 
Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5. And in Malachi chapter 2, it says, God says, I hate divorce in some translations. That's how it is translated. I hate divorce is what God says. So look, I'm just going to say this. I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer when it comes to divorce. And I'm not going to stand up here today and, and tell you what divorce is okay and what divorce isn't okay. Because I'd probably be drawing my own circles of self-righteousness, wouldn't I? And so I'm not going to do that. And like I said, Christ died for all of our sins. Amen. And I know this because I am married. I know that challenges in marriage, and there's a number of us here who are married, every single one of us would say, there's challenges in marriage. It's not so much a matter of if, but when. And I know that those are personal and unique, and it would be really difficult for me to stand up here and try to make some sort of box that we could fit all of that into. So I'm not going to do that. I do promise I'll, I'll be here to walk with you through whatever challenges you have in your marriages. In the midst of all of this, I think we can probably agree on two things. We should be able to agree on this. First, as I said before, divorce, whether it's justified or unjustified, produces hurt and pain and sorrow and brokenness and other consequences for those who are divorced, for their families and their friends. And as such, when you recognize divorce is a pretty serious thing, isn't it? And I think we also could agree on this, that God says, I hate divorce. God hates divorce, but God does not hate those who have been divorced. God does not hate you. If you're here this morning and you go, I have been divorced or I am divorced, God does not hate you. 1 Peter 3.18, let's just remember, Christ also died for sins once for all, just for the unjust, so he might bring us to God. And so we can all agree that Christ forgives any sin that might be associated with divorce. So now let's ask this. How should I approach the issue of divorce in my own life? How should I approach it? Each one of us here today is sitting in a unique situation as it pertains to marriage, aren't we, right? And so some of you are singles or unmarried. Some of you are unmarried. And that's great. If you're not yet married, there's a couple things you can do. First, resolve not to divorce. It's something to really think through before you get married. Say, I am not going to do this. To do that, I think you need to adopt a biblical approach to marriage. And that includes the concept of, I'm going to marry one person and it's going to be for life. When we do that, we understand that that's probably the second most important decision you will ever make. The first most important being whether you're going to place your faith in, faith in Jesus Christ or not. When we think of the marriage vows, we've all been to weddings, and we hear them, oh, for better or worse, for better or worse. What that really means is, I'll stick with you when things are bad. Things are going to be hard. Like, for better, that's easy, right? For worse. When things are incredibly difficult, when things are challenging, going to be there. 
So a second thing I think you can do is to develop habits of righteousness now. If you're not married, you think about, wow, this is a serious deal, and it's going to be really hard. We say for better or worse, it's probably going to be for worse a lot of the time. So what habits of righteousness am I going to develop now to walk in? Your spouse, your future spouse will be blessed if you have peace and patience. If you have a sacrificial heart, if you've developed an attitude and a habit of selflessness, your future spouse will be blessed if you join in with a community of other believers. You make a commitment. And I know a number of you who are single, there's a big question on your mind. That big question is, who am I going to marry? Right? I love working with the singles because I get to have these conversations frequently. I'm sort of thinking about this and who am I going to marry? And I love it. I love it. But I'll say this. Will you trust God that you can seek His kingdom and His righteousness first? And trust that He's going to bring you a husband or a wife who will be with you on that mission? develop those habits of righteousness now. Now, a number of you are married, and so if you are married, some principles are actually not that different. You too can resolve not to get divorced. I encourage you to shut the door on that as an option. Shut the door on it. And so part of what that means is that you are going to say, I am always going to seek help. Regardless of what the challenges I'm facing or we're facing in our marriage, even in the really difficult situations of abuse and infidelity and addiction and other things, I'm going to seek help. I don't want, I will not let divorce be an option. And maybe you're not quite there to that point. It's just a little practical tip. Something that's really helped me in my marriage. One told me before we got married, they said, don't ever joke about divorce in your marriage. So easy to joke. I know <clears throat> my wife and I, we laugh a lot together about a lot of different things. We joke about a lot of things, but we never joke about divorce. That word is rarely used in our house. And that's a line we don't want to cross. And we don't want to get into that because joking, at some point, my wife always says, as we joke about things, she says, there's an element of seriousness in your joke. Right? We don't ever want there to be that. So we won't joke about that. You also, married folk, can develop habits of righteousness. Yes, it's not like you've run out of time to develop habits of righteousness. You need to continue developing habits of righteousness. And you develop those habits, they're going to bless your marriage. Like we said, determined to get help. Determined to get help for the challenges that you have. Like I said, it's not if things are hard, it's when things get hard. Amen. And again, as pastors, we're here to help you. Um, something you may have heard me say before, and I'll say it again, is as a pastor, I, I will help you wherever you're at. I'll, I'll do my best. I'll listen to you. We'll talk. Um, if you are in a, a marriage and, and one of you sleeping on the couch, let's talk. Let's, let's see if we can help. Let's see what we can do. But man, if you can come to me long before you ever end up on that couch, that would be a lot better for all of us, won't it? So don't hesitate. Don't wait. Seek help. Now there's a third category. Some of you who are here today who 
are divorced. And maybe you've remarried or maybe you haven't. If you are divorced, you still also need to approach the issue of divorce from a gospel-based biblical perspective, don't you? So I would encourage you, maybe uniquely, is can you let go of fighting that battle of was I justified or not? So justified or not? Let's remember, God hates divorce. And that's true even if you could say it was 100% justified. God still hates it. And it still brings brokenness. Divorce always comes from something broken. No one says, hey, I've got a great marriage, let's get divorced. It comes from things that are broken and terrible. And like we said, God does not hate those who have been divorced. If you are divorced here today, God loves you. You are loved by God. You are forgiven by God. And we at this church love you as well. And we don't stand in judgment on you. So I would encourage you, if you are divorced, divorced, determined to get help for your hurts. You've already walked through that and there are probably still challenges and you probably still carry baggage wherever you are in the situation. Get help. We as a church and we as pastors, we're here to help you if we can. We're here to help you. And then, same as whether you're unmarried or married, you too can resolve not to be divorced. Because you move forward and you walk down the path, resolve not to be divorced, and again, you too can develop righteous habits that will bless either your current spouse, if you're remarried, or a future spouse, if you do get remarried. And actually, if you are divorced, you may have one advantage. You can probably learn from the experiences that you've had. I think you can be a picture of God demonstrating how He heals and He forgives and He loves and He renews and He restores. And He can do that with you too. He can do that with you too. And so there we have it. In closing, I'll just give you a summation of what we talked about this morning, what I've really seen uh, from this passage. First off, I can conclude that I don't need to draw a circle around the sin of adultery in my life. I don't need to try to self-justify because Jesus perfectly obeyed the high bar of God's law in my place. Secondly, I can allow Christ's death and He died in my place. I can allow that to prompt me to turn from lust, to turn from divorce and choose a righteous biblical approach to marriage. It's because the world says, oh, you got a lust and oh, divorce should be easy. I don't need to go down that route. I can turn from that because Christ died in my place. Remember last week we talked about the snow plow and the deep snow bank and Christ cleared the path for us so that we can walk down that path. Finally, I can trust that obeying Christ's instruction will bear good fruit in my life and in the lives of others. He didn't just make up these rules and say, don't get, don't get divorced and don't lust because I just want to sort of kill your joy and your fun. He said, don't do those things. And if you don't do those things, it's going to bear good fruit. And that's what we're aiming for. I'll pray and then we'll close. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you speak through your word. Lord, as as we live here in the year 2017, I'm thankful that we have the Bible and the words of Jesus recorded to instruct us when it comes to really difficult sins and issues and challenges and brokenness in our life. I thank you that there's instruction. 
And God, I just, again, I just come before you in humility and say, I, I don't know if I really understand completely all the answers. And Lord, I, I think about an issue like divorce and I go, wow, it, it is so hard. And I've had people so close to me who uh, have walked through that. God, I know in my heart, I want to say, well, is it justified or we're not? Are they right or not? Are they sinners or not? And I realize I, I don't want to draw those circles. And God, I don't need to draw those circles because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He lived perfectly. He didn't lust. He wasn't divorced. He didn't commit adultery. And he did that so that he could go to his death on the cross and pay that penalty for my sin. God, and I'm so thankful for that. Lord, if there's any who are here this morning who haven't placed their faith and trust and received the free gift of salvation, I pray you be moving in their hearts, their lives, and draw them into that. That is as simple as confessing that I am a sinner. I know Jesus Christ died for me and paid that penalty and so I received that free gift of Him in my place. And Jesus invites you into my life to live, to be my Lord and my Savior and to help me. Lord, and for those of us who have made that decision, help us to walk in paths of righteousness, not paths of self-righteousness, but paths of righteousness following behind Christ what He's done. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.